Section 1 of Areopagitica. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Areopagitica by John Milton. Section 1. Areopagitica. A speech for the liberty of unlicensed printing to the Parliament of England. This is true liberty, when free-born men, having to advise the public, may speak free, which he who can and will deserves high praise, who neither can nor will may hold his peace. What can be juster in a state than this? Euripides, high setted. They who to states and governors of the commonwealth direct their speech, high court of parliament, or, wanting such access in a private condition, write that which they foresee may advance the public good. I suppose them, as at the beginning of no mean endeavour, not a little altered, and moved inwardly in their minds, some with doubt of what will be the success, others with fear of what will be the censure, some with hope, others with confidence of what they have to speak. And me, perhaps, each of these dispositions, as the subject was whereon I entered, may have at other times variously affected, and likely might, in these foremost expressions, now also disclose which of them swayed most. But that the very attempt of this address thus made, and the thought of whom it hath recourse to, hath got the power within me to a passion, far more welcome than incidental to a preface. Which though I stay not to confess ere any ask, I shall be blameless, if it be no other than the joy and gratulation which it brings to all who wish and promote their country's liberty, whereof this whole discourse proposed will be a certain testimony, if not a trophy. For this is not the liberty which we can hope, that no grievance ever should arise in the commonwealth. That let no man in this world expect. But when complaints are freely heard, deeply considered, and speedily reformed, then is the utmost bound of civil liberty attained that wise men look for. To which, if I now manifest by the very sound of this which I shall utter, that we are already in good part arrived, and yet from such a steep disadvantage of tyranny and superstition, grounded into our principles, as was beyond the manhood of a Roman recovery, it will be attributed first, as is most due, to the strong assistance of God our Deliverer, next to your faithful guidance and undaunted wisdom, lords and commons of England. Neither is it in God's esteem the diminution of his glory, when honourable things are spoken of good men and worthy magistrates. Which, if I now first should begin to do, after so fair a progress of your laudable deeds, and such a long obligement upon the whole realm to your indefatigable virtues, I might be justly reckoned among the tardiest and the unwillingest of them that praise ye. Nevertheless, there being three principal things without which all praising is but courtship and flattery. First, when that only is praised which is solidly worth praise. Next, when greatest likelihoods are brought that such things are truly and really in those persons to whom they are ascribed. The other, when he who praises by showing that such his actual persuasion is of whom he writes, can demonstrate that he flatters not. The former two of these I have heretofore endeavoured, 
rescuing the employment from him who went about to impair your merits with a trivial and malignant encomium the latter as belonging chiefly to mine own acquittal that whom i so extolled i did not flatter hath been reserved opportunely to this occasion for he who freely magnifies what hath been nobly done and fears not to declare as freely what might be done better gives ye the best covenant of his fidelity and that his loyalest affection and his hope waits on your proceedings his highest praising is not flattery and his plainest advice is a kind of praising for though i should affirm and hold by argument that it would fare better with truth with learning and the commonwealth if one of your published orders which i should name were called in yet at the same time it could not but much redound to the lustre of your mind and equal government whenas private persons are hereby animated to think ye better pleased with public advice than other statists have been delighted heretofore with public flattery and men will then see what difference there is between the magnanimity of a triennial parliament and that jealous haughtiness of prelates and cabin councillors that usurped of late when as they shall observe ye in the midst of your victories and successes more gently brooking written exceptions against devoted order than other courts which had produced nothing worth memory but the weak ostentation of wealth would have endured the least signified dislike at any sudden proclamation if i should thus far presume upon the meek demeanour of your civil and gentle greatness lords and commons as what your published order hath directly said that to gainsay i might defend myself with ease if any should accuse me of being new or insolent did they but know how much better i find ye esteem it to imitate the old and elegant humanity of greece than the barbaric pride of a hunnish and norwegian stateliness and out of those ages to whose polite wisdom and letters we owe that we are not yet goths and jutlanders i could name him who from his private house wrote that discourse to the parliament of athens that persuades them to change the form of democracy which was then established such honour was done in those days to men who professed the study of wisdom and eloquence not only in their own country but in other lands that cities and seigneuries heard them gladly and with great respect if they had aught in public to admonish the state thus did dion prusaeus a stranger and a private orator counsel the rhodians against a former edict and i abound with other like examples which to set here would be superfluous but if from the industry of a life wholly dedicated to studious labours and those natural endowments haply not the worst for two and fifty degrees of northern latitude so much must be derogated as to count me not equal to any of those who had this privilege i would obtain to be thought not so inferior as yourselves are superior to the most of them who receive their counsel and how far you excel them be assured lords and commons there can no greater testimony appear than when your prudent spirit acknowledges and obeys the voice of reason from what quarter soever it be heard speaking and renders ye as willing to repeal any act of your own setting forth as any set forth by your predecessors if ye be thus resolved as it were injury to think ye were not i know not what should withhold me from presenting ye with a fit instance wherein to show both that love of truth which ye eminently profess 
and that uprightness of your judgment, which is not wont to be partial to yourselves, by judging over again that order which ye have ordained to regulate printing, that no book, pamphlet, or paper shall be henceforth printed, unless the same be first approved and licensed by such, or at least one of such, as shall be thereto appointed. For that part which preserves justly every man's copy to himself, or provides for the poor, I touch not, only wish they be not made pretenses to abuse and persecute honest and painful men, who offend not in either of these particulars. But that other clause of licensing books, which we thought had died with his brother, quadragesimal and matrimonial when the prelates expired, I shall now attend with such a homily, as shall lay before ye, first the inventors of it to be those whom ye will be loath to own, next what is to be thought in general of reading, whatever sort the books be, and that this order avails nothing to the suppressing of scandalous, seditious, and libelous books, which were mainly intended to be suppressed. Last, that it will be primely to the discouragement of all learning, and the stop of truth, not only by disexercising and blunting our abilities in what we know already, but by hindering and cropping the discovery that might be yet further made both in religious and civil wisdom. I deny not, but that it is of greatest concernment in the Church and Commonwealth to have a vigilant eye how books demean themselves as well as men, and thereafter to confine, imprison, and do sharpest justice on them as malefactors. For books are not absolutely dead things, but do contain a potency of life in them, to be as active as that soul was whose progeny they are. Nay, they do preserve as in a vial the purest efficacy and extraction of that living intellect that bred them. I know they are as lively, and as vigorously productive, as those fabulous dragon's teeth, and being sown up and down may chance to spring up armed men. And yet, on the other hand, unless wariness be used, as good almost kill a man as kill a good book. Who kills a man kills a reasonable creature, God's image. But he who destroys a good book kills reason itself, kills the image of God, as it were in the eye. Many a man lives a burden to the earth, but a good book is the precious life-blood of a master spirit, embalmed and treasured up on purpose to a life beyond life. Tis true, no age can restore a life, whereof perhaps there is no great loss, and revolutions of ages do not oft recover the loss of a rejected truth, for the want of which whole nations fare the worse. We should be wary, therefore, what persecution we raise against the living labours of public men, how we spill that seasoned life of man, preserved and stored up in books, since we see a kind of homicide may be thus committed, sometimes a martyrdom, and if it extend to the whole impression, a kind of massacre, whereof the execution ends not in the slaying of an elemental life, but strikes at that ethereal and fifth essence, the breath of reason itself, slays an immortality rather than a life. But lest I should be condemned of introducing license, while I oppose licensing, I refuse not the pains to be so much historical, as will serve to show what hath been done by ancient and famous commonwealths against this disorder, till the very time that this project of licensing crept out of the Inquisition, 
was catched up by our prelates, and hath caught some of our presbyters. In Athens, where books and wits were ever busier than in any other part of Greece, I find but only two sorts of writings which the magistrate cared to take notice of, those either blasphemous and atheistical, or libelous. Thus the books of Protagoras were by the judges of Areopagus commanded to be burnt, and himself banished to the territory for a discourse begun with his confessing not to know whether there were gods or whether not. And against defaming, it was decreed that none should be traduced by name, as was the manner of Vetus Comedia, whereby we may guess how they censured libeling. And this course was quick enough, as Cicero writes, to quell both the desperate wits of other atheists, and the open way of defaming, as the event showed. Of other sects and opinions, though tending to voluptuousness, and the denying of divine providence, they took no heed. Therefore we do not read that either Epicurus, or that libertine school of Cyrene, or what the cynic impudence uttered, was ever questioned by the laws. Neither is it recorded that the writings of those old comedians were suppressed, though the acting of them were forbid, and that Plato commended the reading of Aristophanes, the loosest of them all, to his royal scholar Dionysius, is commonly known, and may be excused, if holy Chrysostom, as is reported, nightly studied so much the same author, and had the art to cleanse a scurrilous vehemence into the style of a rousing sermon. That other leading city of Greece, Lacedaemon, considering that Lycurgus, their lawgiver, was so addicted to elegant learning, as to have been the first that brought out of Ionia the scattered works of Homer, and sent the poet Thales from Crete, to prepare and mollify the Spartan surliness, with his smooth songs and odes, the better to plant among them law and civility. It is to be wondered how museless and unbookish they were, minding naught but the feats of war. There needed no licensing of books among them, for they disliked all but their own laconic apophthegms, and took a slight occasion to chase Archilochus out of their city, perhaps for composing in a higher strain than their own soldierly ballads and roundels could reach to. Or, if it were for his broad verses, they were not therein so cautious, but that they were as dissolute in their promiscuous conversing, whence Euripides affirms in Andromache that their women were all unchaste. Thus much may give us light after what sort of books were prohibited among the Greeks. End of section one. Recording by Moira Fogarty in Toronto, Canada, June two thousand eight.